You're listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. This week we're continuing our study of the Psalms of Ascent. We're calling On the Road to Worship. With this week's message, here's Connections Pastor Caleb Carmichael. We are in the middle of a series called On the Road to Worship, where we are walking through the Psalms of Ascent. This is a collection of psalms that you can find in in the book of Psalms in your Bible. Um, But this collection was organized and compiled together for the nation of Israel to sing together, to remind themselves of, of the truth of God's word as they were making pilgrimages back to Jerusalem. So three times a year, um, they would travel from wherever they were to Jerusalem to worship the Lord, to give thanks to him, to celebrate these festivals. And these psalms were were a collection. Think of your road trip jams where you used to make CDs and put them in. This This was Israel's collection of the things that they would use to prepare their hearts and prepare their minds for coming to Jerusalem to worship. And and so we, as a church, are walking through some of these psalms leading up to Easter, and we're hoping that by doing this, we're we're going to prepare our hearts um, for the truth and the hope that comes from Easter. And so so we invite you to join us all through this month as we continue continue walking through these psalms. And and as I began to to think through these psalms and think about the pilgrimage and think about the journey, um, I couldn't help um, but think of my own time in my life and a pilgrimage that I went on, much less significant than this, but, but impactful to me, was when I was 11 years old, my dad took me on a baseball trip. Um, so we, the plan was we were going to go to eight different ballparks in about 13 days. And so we started in Dallas. We went to the, the Rangers. And then we traveled north to Kansas City, watched the Royals play, uh, went over to St. Louis, watched the Cardinals play. And then from there, we traveled to Chicago. And if you're a baseball fan, you know the significance of Chicago. And you know how excited I was to go to Chicago because Chicago is the home of the Cubs, but it's also the home of Wrigley Field and Wrigley Field is iconic. It's legendary in the baseball world. It was built in 1914, and so the time we we're going on this trip, it's it's almost 100 years old, and and I was just so excited. And what's unique about Wrigley Field um, is it's the only ballpark in the MLB that doesn't have padding on the wall. It's actually got a brick wall, and that brick wall is covered with ivy. And so in the middle of the summer, the wall has this green ivy all along the wall. It's super unique, super iconic. And so I remember 11-year-old me, big baseball fan, um, Sammy Sosa's around that time. I can't wait to get to Chicago to see the Cubs play and to see Wrigley Field. And I remember all of the emotions of that trip, right? The excitement leading up to when we're going and then like the boredom that set in 30 minutes into the drive. And I'm like, when are we going to get there? Because this is pre-iPhone and iPad days, so it's just like, you know, license plate game the whole way. And, and so the boredom and then the excitement every time we get to a new place and get to see a new stadium. And then the excitement when we pulled in Chicago and, and we checked in and then we got on the bus to drive us downtown to Wrigley Field. And I remember getting off of the bus and there is Wrigley. And there's the big iconic red marquee sign that says Wrigley Field, home of the Chicago Cubs. And I remember walking into that stadium and walking up the ramp and seeing the field laid out before me, seeing that green wall of ivy and thinking, man, I'm here. How incredible is it to be right here where all of this history and all of this is is here? I just, oh, I was so excited. And it was one of the best days of my 11-year-old life, right? I remember getting a Chicago hot dog and getting a chocolate malt, and I remember the Cubs winning, and I remember thinking, man, I don't want this day to end. It's such a great day. But of course, like everything, the, the day ended, um, but it ended with a deep dish Chicago pizza, so that was, that was good. 
until about five or six hours later where my dad wakes up in the middle of the night and we think he has food poisoning, but what actually was happening is his appendix had ruptured. <laughs> and so we're in Chicago, um, his appendix ruptures, we have to go to the hospital and, and our epic baseball trip got cut short. And my grandma had to, had to get up to Chicago and get me and we had to drive back home and, and the trip ended unexpectedly. And I think about that trip and I think about the excitement of that trip starting and then the joy of the moment of being there in Wrigley and all that that meant. And then I think about the reality of the fact that even in that great moment of the brokenness that's all around us, that we live in this broken world. And maybe you've experienced something similar. This, you've experienced a moment that you've been waiting for. You've been looking forward to something for a long time, and it finally arrives. And it's exciting, and it's awesome, and it's amazing. Or maybe for you, it's when you were 16, and you got your driver's license, and it's like that taste of freedom. You're like, I'm finally on my own, and I can drive for myself. Maybe for you, it was the moment when you graduated high school, or you graduated college, or or maybe you can think back to maybe that first date with that some special someone. You're thinking about how exciting it was and how nervous you was. And then, and then you get there and, and maybe you don't make a fool of yourself. And you're like, ah, that was amazing. Think about the time you get married or when you have kids. Or, or maybe it's that promotion that you've been working hard for and it finally arrives. Or, or maybe it's just something like a vacation that you've been longing for and you finally get to where you're going. And you're like, ah, life is good. And yet in those moments... We're all aware that those moments are fleeting, that they don't last, that the book of Ecclesiastes calls these moments hevel. It's this paradox. It's the fact that they're a mist, they're a vapor, that you can see them, they're there, and you can touch them, but when you reach out, you just can't quite hold on. And we all have this longing and this desire for joy and for wholeness and for restoration, and then there's, there's this tension that we feel because we can experience moments of it now. We get this taste of God here and now, and yet at the same time, we look forward to the day and we long for the day that we know is coming where all things are restored, where goodness reigns and where there is no more evil. And I think David in Psalm 122 invites us into that tension that we feel. And he invites us into the hope of that reality. So if you have your copy of scripture, I'd invite you to open to Psalm 122. If you don't have your own copy of scripture, there's some Bibles at the back of the room. We would love for you to pick one of those up, take it home with you. It's our gift to you this morning. You're also welcome to follow along in the Church Center app or the YouVersion Bible app. You can find um, all of these verses there as well. And as you're turning there, I want to give one caveat before we walk through this psalm. Um, one of the lenses that our church uses as, as we view Scripture, one of the lenses that we view Scripture through, is that Israel and the church are unique. That Israel, the nation, and the church, and the New Testament church, are actually distinct entities. And so that the promises made to Israel in the Old Testament apply to Israel, and the promises made to the church in the New Testament apply to the church, and that you can't just take one and lay it over the other and directly apply one to the other. But while that we believe that's true, there are principles that we can gain. And so as we, the New Testament church, are going to look at this psalm that was meant for the nation of Israel on their pilgrimages to worship the Lord, I think there are principles that we can glean from this psalm. And so with all of that in mind, I invite you to read along with me Psalm 122, starting in verse 1. It's a psalm of David, and he says, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. 
Jerusalem built as a city that is bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up. The tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. There, thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord, I will seek your good. Now, this psalm has a different tone than the last few weeks. The last few weeks have had this dark tone, this mourning tone, this lament tone of, of God, where are you? Where's my help? I'm surrounded by evil. But this one, the tone shifts. And we see David in this moment says, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. He reflects that there is joy to be found in worshiping the Lord, to gather together with his people to worship the Lord. And he's saying, I am excited when this moment of my journey is started. I can't wait for this journey to get here. And notice that this is a choice of his attitude. That in just a few verses, we're going to see where it was required of Israel to make these pilgrimages. It was part of their law that they had to travel to Jerusalem three times a year. So it wasn't a choice that they had to go there, but it was a choice in the attitude that they would bring there. And so David, in his attitude, he's choosing that I am excited, I am rejoicing, I am full of joy that I get to go to the house of the Lord because the house of the Lord is where God's presence is. And, and I think about David choosing to be filled with joy as he goes to worship. And we worship because we want to, not because we're forced to. Israel was forced to come, but even in that, they weren't forced to truly worship. Because I can imagine some Israelites, as they're beginning this journey, they're starting like, ah, oh, again, I've already been twice this year. I really, you know, I really don't want to go again. It's a long way, and the kids don't have the iPad, and I got, it's going to be a long, you know, I just don't want to go. It's really not a good time of year for me, you know, that the harvest is coming, and I really need to be here. I don't, I don't want to go. But David said, no, I, I want to worship, that true worship comes from this genuine desire to praise and to thank and to honor the Lord, that we worship when we want to. But want to doesn't always mean feel like it. And I'm going to be honest, there are many Sundays when I show up here and I don't feel like worshiping. That I'm tired, the kids kept me up late, lost an hour of sleep, right? That, that it's my job to be here, that there's a hundred other things in my head about what I could be doing or what I have to do later this week, that when I show up on a Sunday morning, so often I don't feel like worshiping. But I still want to worship. Because my strongest desires are not my deepest desires. And your strongest desires are not your deepest desires. And here's, here's what I mean by that. Within the last year, I've, I've gotten in um, to doing triathlons, um, which is really just a terrible idea. Because here's the thing about triathlons. Um, you, you swim, and then you bike, and then you run. And so if you're a mediocre athlete like me, you get to be mediocre at three things instead of just one. And, and so in all of this, I, you know, I, I enjoy the swimming and I enjoy the bike, but I'm, I'm just a terrible runner. I've never really enjoyed running. Um, part of it's because I'm bad at it and I'm slow, but I really, really want to be a better runner. I have a deep desire to become a better runner. And so what that means is I need to spend time training. I need to spend time running. And with two young kids, the, the best time that I've found that works with our schedule is to get up super early before anyone else is awake. 
And so what happens is my alarm will go off in the morning at around five. And in that moment, I, I, I have a very strong desire to go back to sleep, right? My strongest desire when my alarm goes off is to go back to sleep. But my deeper desire, my deeper desire is to become a better runner. And so in this moment, when my alarm goes off, I have a choice to make. Which desire am I going to feed? Am I going to feed my strongest desire to go back to sleep? Or am I going to feed my deeper desire to become a better runner? And if I'm honest, often the stronger desire wins. But what I found is the more that I give in to the deeper desire, the more that I feed that desire, the easier it becomes to get up in the morning. The more that I feed this deeper desire, the more I actually feel like getting up. I might not want to at first, but then I'm excited to do this thing because it's the deepest desire that I have. So my strongest desires are not my deepest desires. Your strongest desires are not your deepest desires. And ultimately, I think my strongest desire and your strongest desire is for God himself. That my deepest desire at the core of who I am is that I desire God himself. And I would say the same is true for you, even if it doesn't feel like it, even if you wouldn't use those words to describe it, even if you're, as I'm saying that, you're disagreeing with me about what your deepest desire is, even if like you made a list of all the desires in your life and God wasn't even like the top 20, I still think at our very core, God is our deepest desire, that God has placed within us a desire for himself, that he has placed eternity in our hearts, that he's placed a longing for acceptance and for love within us. And that deeper than anything else, we desire him. And so even if you've never felt like worshiping, even if you wouldn't say you desire God, that deep down you know that there is something more, something that you've perhaps tried to find satisfaction in in a million different ways, and yet you're always longing for something else. So if I'm honest, my desire for God, even if it's my deepest, is very rarely the strongest desire in my life. But there are moments, the moments when I can connect with him, the moments where I can feel his presence, the moments when, I, when I'm surrounded by the peace that he offers, those moments leave me wanting more. I long and I ache to experience God's presence in every part of my life. I want more of him. I want more of his love and his grace and his mercy. I want to learn from his wisdom. I want to, to reflect his goodness to the world around me. I want to point my children into the arms of their heavenly father who love and accept them, right? I want God and I want him here and I want him now. And I think you get that with David's worries. I was glad when they said to me, let's go to the house of the Lord. Because in David's time with the tabernacle and eventually what would become the temple, the house of the Lord was where God's presence was uniquely felt. That God chose Jerusalem and chose the tabernacle, chose the temple to be, this is where I'm going to send my presence in a unique way that the people can come to me here and they can experience me. And so David says, I was glad when I came there. But for us, the church, the, the temple is long gone. But what's incredible is that scripture tells us that as believers, the spirit actually dwells within us. That you and I are actually miniature temples walking around. That Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, he says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? And this you in the Greek is actually plural. So if Paul was Texan, he might have written it this way. Don't y'all know that y'all are God's temple and the spirit of God dwells in y'all? 
which is incredible. When you actually stop to think about it, that sitting here in this moment right now, that the Spirit of God is dwelling within me, and He's dwelling within Him, and He's dwelling within her, and He's dwelling in with Him, and in this room, God's Spirit is here now. And so how do we awaken that deeper desire, that desire for the Lord that is in each one of us? I think it begins by simply becoming aware of it, by becoming aware of the fact that we have this deeper desire. And then when we become aware of it, we choose in the moments to feed it, even when we don't feel like it. That Eugene Peterson, he's a pastor and an author, he says we can act ourselves into a new way of feeling much quicker than we can feel ourselves into a new way of acting. And so even if you, you show up on a Sunday morning and you don't feel like worshiping, that you can choose to worship in that moment. And what will happen is when you choose to act, even when you don't feel like it, the feelings will naturally follow. That you can act yourselves into this new way of feeling much quicker than you can feel yourselves into a new way of acting. So even when we don't feel like worshiping, we worship anyway. And then David continues in verse 2, and he says, Our feet have been standing in your gates, O Jerusalem. And it's this moment of, of Wrigley Field for me where I'm standing there going, Wow, I'm actually here. David is saying, he says, We're here. We're within the gates of Jerusalem. We are actually here where God's presence is. Wow. And I don't know about you, but most often on a Sunday morning when I walk into this room, I don't walk in and go, wow, I'm here. <laughs> but maybe I should. And not because there's anything special about this building or, or the fact that it's Grace Church, but by the fact that, that there are hundreds of followers of Jesus gathered together for a shared purpose. Maybe I should feel, Wow. And so maybe a way that we can become aware of that desire for God and then maybe a way we can act before we feel is to simply take a moment before and during these gatherings where we worship together to remind ourselves of the significance that God is here with us. And so I want to invite us to do that just now. I'm going to invite you to join me in prayer. We're going to continue with the lesson in a moment, but I just want to take a moment to focus on the fact that God is here now. And so, Father, we come before you. And we ask that you would make us aware of your presence now. God, I pray that we wouldn't take lightly the significance that you are here. And God, I ask you to awaken in all of us our desire for you. And so, God, we give you this morning, we ask that you would speak to us through your Holy Spirit. And we ask this, trusting that you will, in Jesus' name. Amen. And David continues in, in verse 3. He says, Jerusalem, built as a city that is bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. There, thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David that he's reflecting on the splendor of this city. The pilgrims who would make this journey would arrive and they would have that moment of amazement and awe of being there. The, the splendor of the place where God has chosen to make his home. This is the place where justice would go out to all of the nations, the place where heaven and earth would meet. 
In Coverdale, one of the earliest translations of the Bible into English says verse 3. It translates verse 3 this way. It says, Jerusalem, a city that is at unity with itself. That's what a great line. Jerusalem, a city that is at unity with itself. There's different tribes, different experiences, different perspectives, different journeys, different backgrounds. But in Jerusalem, as they gathered together, they are at unity with themselves. And what a picture of what the church should be. Philippians 2 says this, it says, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete by joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And as we sit in this room together, there are people from so many different backgrounds who have so many different stories, who maybe have so many different even political affiliations. But imagine, imagine with me what it would look like to in this room have the same mind, to have the same love, to be in full accord with one another. That when we are gathered here together on a Sunday morning, it's because of our shared purpose to worship the Lord, to make disciples, to love God, and to love others. That when we gathered here together on a Sunday morning, we all came in with the same mind, that we want to worship the Lord, we want to give thanks to Him, we want to learn what it means to follow Jesus, and then we want to walk out of these doors and we want to follow Him together. Israel, on these journeys, they had, a, they had a shared purpose. They had all of these different tribes coming together in this moment, but their shared purpose was to come to the house of the Lord to do what? to give thanks, to give thanks. This was actually a command for Israel that they had to come to give thanks to the Lord. And this is also a command for New Testament believers. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians, he says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And this is one of those verses when it comes to following Jesus. It's so, so simple, but it's so difficult. Like, how do I follow Jesus? What do I do? Well, you, you can rejoice always. Like, I have to be filled with joy, like, all the time? Yeah, yeah, do that. And then, and then what? Okay, well, pray. Okay, so some of the time. No, no, all the time. Pray without ceasing. Oh, okay. And then what? Give thanks for the good stuff? No, in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Now, what a huge statement is that? This is the will of God for you. If you're a follower of Jesus, this is God's will for you. And as a pastor, so often I get people who will come and say, well, how do I determine God's will? What, how do I know what God's will is for me? Which, how do, what choice do I make? Like, what school do I go to? What job do I take? How do I, how do I know what God's will is for my life? And Paul says, well, part of it's right here. Just, just do this. Just rejoice all the time. Pray all the time. Give thanks all the time because that's God's will for you. And if I'm honest, I don't, I don't do this very well. But the moments that I do, something in my heart changes. 
I can remember back to last Thanksgiving, um, coming to the house in early November, and my wife Sam had come up with this craft for us to do as a family. So she had this little tree that was kind of empty. It was just like the sticks. And then we had these little paper, um, cardboard paper leaves. And so the idea was every, every night at dinner, we'd sit down as a family, and we would go around the table, and we'd share what we were thankful for. And we would write that thing on the leaf and then stick it on the tree. And so by the end of the month, you have this tree full of leaves, and you can look back and see all of the things that we said we were thankful for for the last month. And really, it kind of started as a, as a way to teach our son, who was three, Grayson, to, to kind of get the attention off of himself and to focus on other things, right? It was for him at first. And what would happen is we'd sit down like the first night and Grayson would start and it would, he would just like whatever was right in front of him would be the thing he was thankful for. So like night one, Grayson, what are you thankful for? Uh, chicken nuggets. Perfect. Chicken nuggets, right? And, and Sam and I would say something, and we'd write them down, and we'd stick it on the tree. And, and the next night, like, Grayson's thankful for mac and cheese. And then the next night, he was thankful for, like, whatever, fruit. And it was like, okay, we need to expand past the dinner table for, for what we're thankful for. And, and I remember, for me, it was, it was pretty easy for the first week or week and a half to think of things that I was thankful for. And we came up with this rule where we couldn't repeat things, and that was mainly for the chicken nuggets. But what... But, <laughs> What Sam and I found is, is after a week or two, it was actually, it was a little hard to come up with something new. Because what would happen is I'd have a, a, maybe a bad day or a frustrating day, and, and I'd come home, and I'd sit down at dinner, and, and I'd have this thought in the back of my head of like, I'm not thankful for anything. Like, I have nothing to be thankful for. Today was a bad day. It was frustrating. Everything went wrong. I'm not thankful in this moment, so I don't know what I'm going to be. I don't know what I'm going to write. And I found it kind of hard to find things to write down. And so then I had this thought when I woke up one morning, it's like, oh, I know dinner's coming. I know I'm going to have to say something. So what, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to start, like, looking for things to be thankful for. Like, yeah, okay. <laughs> Took me a while to figure it out. <laughs> but what I would do is I'd start looking for things. And, and as I'd go, like, I'd, you know, like a really good cup of coffee in the morning. I'm like, oh, I'm writing that down, right? Take a note on my phone. In the first day, there were, like, two or three things that I wrote down. So I was like, yeah, I've got a, I've got a good list when I come to dinner. And the next day, there'd be three or four. And the next day, there'd be four or five. And, and by the end of the month, my little list had grown to where there's 10 or 15 or 20 things that throughout the day that I had found that I was thankful for. And what I also noticed that happened is throughout that month, as I, as I went from pretty discontent, where it'd be easy to be frustrated, easy to be just mad at how things had gone, easy to be like jealous of other things that were going on, to by the end of the month, it was so much easier to be content it was so much easier to, in the middle of the day, pause and give thanks to the Lord. It was so much easier just to be aware of God's presence and his provision in the day-to-day -day moments of my life. All because I had simply turned my attention off of myself and turned to the way that God had been blessing me all along. And I had been blind to it for the month before that. Let me go back to that Eugene Peterson quote that we can act ourselves into a new way of feeling much quicker than we can feel ourselves into a new way of acting. That I began acting myself into a way of being thankful, even though I didn't feel thankful, until all of a sudden, by doing the action, by choosing that deeper desire, all of a sudden, I began to feel thankful. And such a lesson when, when David's talking about, I'm standing here in the city gates, and we came here, and we came here to give thanks to the Lord. How often I don't feel thankful, but when I can shift my attention and I can focus on what God's done for me, the feelings will follow. And so perhaps this morning we can, we can just pause again. This idea of praying without ceasing, this doesn't mean that you have to lock yourself in a closet and pray 24 hours a day. 
What Paul's meaning is that just in the day-to-day moments of life, in your normal rhythm of life, be aware that God is with you. Be aware of his presence and turn your attention back to him. So I invite you again just to, to pause in the middle of our lesson and then let's pray again. Father, we thank you. And God, I know that even in the last 10 minutes, my mind has drifted away from you. And so I, I ask that you'd help me recenter and refocus on you. God, I want to thank you for all of the blessings that you've given me, for all of the ways that you're working in my life that I'm so often oblivious to. And again, I pray for us in this room that in this moment we can be aware of your presence now. I ask again that you would speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. And so Thessalonians tells us to rejoice It tells us to pray and it tells us to give thanks. And then as if scripture is all connected, David continues in this psalm. And so far in this psalm, we've seen David rejoice. We've seen him with this call to give thanks. And now he shifts towards prayer. In verse 6, he writes, Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. And so David is shifting the focus of the people off of themselves and onto Jerusalem itself, this place where their hope was located, this place where God was, and shifted their focus back to Jerusalem. And he calls for them to pray for peace, and he calls for them to pray for security. And this word peace in Hebrew is is the word shalom, and when, when I think of peace, especially for, for a, a nation, what I think of peace is that, that means they're just not fighting anybody, right? Like they're not at war, that means they're at peace. But, but the word shalom here in, in Hebrew means so much more than just the absence of conflict, right? The word shalom brings about this, this idea of wholeness, of completeness, of wellness and health, of fulfillment, shalom. Not just absence of conflict, but but restoration and wholeness. And he says to pray for security, and it's the Hebrew word shalvah. And when I think of security, I I think of, I act out, I want security because I'm acting out of fear, or I'm acting out of paranoia. That I, I have a security system on my house because I'm fearful of what's out there in the world. Right, and so when I go to bed at night, I have to make sure I like, arm the security system and I have to make sure all my doors are locked so that hopefully when I go to bed at night, I can feel secure. But what actually happens is I just feel more worried. Did I lock the doors? Is the security system on? I want to make sure it's working. Right? And so we try to guard ourselves and protect ourselves because what we're really, really wanting is shalvah, the security that David mentions. Because this word security isn't coming from a a place of fear or paranoia. The security that David is mentioning here is this sense of peace and the sense of rest and the feeling of being at ease. It's the feeling of being carefree and confident. And so put these together, this shalom, this shavah, what are we praying for? We're praying for a sense of restoration, a sense of completeness, a sense of wholeness and fullness, a sense of carefree peace. We're praying for the weight to be lifted off of our shoulders. We're praying for the ability to move lightly and freely through life. 
that we're praying for the ability to completely surrender our lives to the Lord, to be completely vulnerable for him because we can trust him. That we don't have to to carry it all. We don't have to put all of it on our shoulders. We don't have to be in control of everything to try to manipulate and make sure things work out exactly the way that I want them. That we can give all of that up to the Lord because we're trusting in his shalom, his peace, his wholeness. We're praying for security so I don't have to strive and chase after significance because I understand that I am completely and totally accepted and loved by my heavenly Father. That the pressures of the world would fade away and that I would have peace and security, that I'd be at ease, that I'd have shalom, shalvah. And how amazing does that sound? I want that. And I imagine you do too. And David wants it too, and so he tells Israel to pray for it. But in the fact that he's telling Israel to pray for it means that it's not fully here yet. David realizes even in his rejoicing, even in his giving thanks, even standing there in Jerusalem, the place of God, he realizes that it's not all the way here yet, that all of this could come to an end. So pray for peace because this could end. And it would. 586 B.C., the temple that that David's son Solomon would build, the place where heaven and earth would meet, would be destroyed. That Israel would be sent into exile. And they would have this longing to return to their home, longing to return to this Jerusalem. And that 70 years would go by. Generations. And finally, they'd be able to return to Jerusalem and they would begin to rebuild the temple. But the second temple wouldn't be as grand. It wouldn't be as magnificent as Solomon's temple. And that the, the, the cloud of glory that filled the tabernacle and filled Solomon's temple wouldn't come and fill this second temple. And Israel is left wondering, like, God, where are you? What are you doing? Why aren't you here in the same way? Until Jesus would step on the scene. And imagine Jesus as a, as a young boy making these journeys to Jerusalem for these festivals. Imagine him on the road to worship. Imagine him singing these same psalms of ascent. Imagine Jesus thinking and saying these words, I was filled with joy as I got to go to the house of the Lord. And then Jesus, when he arrives on the scene and he steps into the temple, all of a sudden, God's presence is there. That heaven and earth meet again. That God is with them there. And then yet, not long after Jesus died, in the year 70 A.D., that the temple would be destroyed again. But it's because something better had come. That someone better had come. That Jesus lived and he died. He was buried, but he resurrected. He came back to life and he ascended to the right hand of his Father. And then he sent the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that's living within me and it's living within you as a believer, that this is the good news of the gospel. This was the thing that was better, that no longer was God centralized to a building, that no, he goes with us wherever we are. And the good news of the gospel is that Jesus came to earth and he lived this perfect life and he died on a cross for me and for you. Because I'm so broken 
And I'm so flawed and I'm so messed up in that even if my deepest desire is for God, so often I fail him. But my God is a God of mercy and of love. And he wants to restore me. And he wants to bring me shalom and shalvah. And he wants to bring me into life. And so he sent his son Jesus. Because the scripture tells us that when I sin, when I rebel against God, that the wages of that sin is death. But that Jesus offers me life by taking that punishment for me. And that by simply trusting in Jesus, I can experience life right here, right now. And he offers you life as well. And that by simply placing your faith in Jesus, by trusting what Jesus did on the cross, that's counting for you, that you can be restored. That your relationship with your heavenly father can be restored. That he can begin working on you to restore you to the person that you are created to be. So I invite you in this moment, if you've never trusted in Jesus, to do that right where you're sitting. That you don't have to clean your act up first. You don't have to be good enough. You don't have to say a magic prayer. That simply by trusting Jesus and what he did on the cross, that you can be made whole. And this is the good news of the gospel. This is what's better. And yet, and yet, this call to pray for peace and security still resonates with me, and I imagine it still resonates with you, because we feel it. We feel it. We long for those feelings. We long for this complete sense of peace and security that while Jesus came to restore us and he came to make us right, we're living in this in-between. We're living in this moment where Jesus has come, but he's promised one day to return again and to restore all things to restore all things to where good will reign, there will be no more evil, and we're living in the moment in the in-between where we can experience Jesus' presence, we can experience God now, and yet we long for more. And C.S. Lewis, he captures this idea in his book, Mere Christianity. And he talks about longing, and he describes three ways that we can approach these longings that we can never fully satisfy. And first, he describes what he calls the fool's way. And this is the person who blames everything or everyone else. And they say, if, if only I had a better life, then I would be satisfied. Right? Maybe if I had a better job or a bigger house or a better spouse or if I had more fame or I was more popular or I was more accepted or I drove a better car or I went on better vacations or I had more money or I had more security. If I had those things, then I would be satisfied. And Sia says it's a fool because he doesn't realize that it will never be enough. It will never satisfy. And second, he describes the sensible way, the sensible yet disillusioned way. This is the person who realizes that all of the stuff of the world won't satisfy. And so he resigns himself to live a mediocre experience in life, never expecting much, never risking much so as to never be disappointed. But then he describes the, what he calls the Christian way. And I think he perfectly captures this tension we feel, this tension of being present and finding joy in the moments while longing for the day for something more. And he says this, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. 
If that is so, I must take care on the one hand never to despise or be unthankful for these earthly blessings. And on the other, never to mistake them for the something else of which they are only a kind of copy or echo or mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of my life to press on to that other country and to help others do the same. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. As we meditate and think on those words from Lewis, I'd invite you to turn in your copy of Scripture to one more place, to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, it's going to be in your New Testament, it's going to be closer to the end of your Bible. This was a letter written by the Apostle Paul, one of the followers of Jesus. And he's writing to the church in a place called Corinth. And he's giving them instruction, encouragement on what it means to follow Jesus. And in the middle of his letter, he captures this same idea, the same tension that you and I feel of being in the in-between. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we're going to start in verse 16. And I'm going to read quite a few verses, so I'd encourage you just to follow along with me. And I'm going to read them slowly so that you can Think on these words that Paul gives us. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, starting in verse 16. He says, So we do not lose heart, we being believers. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Chapter 5. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, the tent being, it's the Greek word for tabernacle, it's the same word used in the Old Testament, but it's talking about our bodies, the place where the Spirit is with us. If we know that the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, Eternal in the heavens. For in this tent, in this body, we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. We look forward to the day where we are with the Lord. We look forward to the day where the old is gone and a new has come, where there's new heavens and a new earth and a new Jerusalem that's the center of God's activity. And we get to worship there. And in this place, there's no more pain or no more sorrow, no more tears and no more death. We long for that day. But in the meantime, in the meantime, we aim to please our Heavenly Father. We aim to live out His will. We rejoice always. We pray without ceasing. And we give thanks in all circumstances. You've been listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. You can join us for worship Sunday mornings at our campus on Stone Lake Drive in Wichita Falls. 
Stream services live online at gracechurch.com or subscribe to our podcast published on Apple, Google, and Spotify. From all of us at Grace Church, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.